If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, if you want to feel dumb, you need to follow Michael Tracy on Twitter because the way he is able to see the forest through the trees on issue after issue always makes me say to myself, well, why didn't I think of that? The guy is brilliant, the guy is independent, the guy is fair, and the guy is forward-thinking, and he, he never hesitates to mix it up with people that disagree with him. And I am thrilled that he's agreed to stay up late with us uh, this evening slash this morning. Michael, it's been way too long. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Good to be with you again. By the way, is that an official jam radio jingle? I love those. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jam indeed. I think we're the only radio station in New York still using jams radio jingles. Yeah, I found myself down a YouTube rabbit hole a couple years ago where jam gives a behind the scenes uh, kind of insight on how they actually create the jingles. And yeah, I, some great stories <laughs> uh, from Jam and from uh, and from Pam and a lot of the yeah. radio historians in our audience. They could teach classes in uh, the history of these radio jingles. Now, Michael, uh, let me ask you about your decision last week to republish a piece that you wrote a year ago about January sixth. Why did you choose to just reprint what you had written a year ago and? What were your impressions a year ago regarding the January 6th riot, and have they changed at all over the course of the last year? Well, I republished the piece because virtually everything that I said in it was just as applicable and seemed to have been borne out by subsequent events. When January 6th was happening in real time, you could see the narrative congealing, uh, you know, largely on Twitter and then the feedback loop that Twitter has with cable news and the rest of the media, you know, all of a sudden these new sort of novel terms had, were being bandied about to describe what occurred, uh, insurrection, attempted coup. And I thought it should just be said bluntly uh, at the time last year that to call this an attempted coup is such an abuse of ordinary language that it should automatically make you suspicious about what's driving these incendiary characterizations because the uh, misuse uh, and abuse of language is kind of a tell that there is some ulterior motive driving um, uh, driving the characterizations that rely on such terminology. And so, you know, prior to January 6, 2021, if somebody said there was a coup attempt, uh, that generally connoted an actual attempt whereby some armed faction or some splinter group uh, sought to overthrow a government, right? And even if the January 6 mob or the marauding kind of bands of uh, succeeded in their apparent ambitions that day, it wouldn't have overthrown the United States government. I mean, 
temporarily interrupting a session of Congress would not have collapsed the most powerful state in world history. Right. The, the, right. the president's still the president. Uh, the Supreme Court's still there. Uh, the, the, these people taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's chair, they don't automatically assume the ability to make laws. No, no. I mean, so, yeah. and there are plenty of coup attempts in recent history that you could point to as a reasonable uh, reference point for what a coup attempt actually is. Like in 2016, there was a coup attempt in Turkey mm-hmm. where a uh, faction of the military splintered off and came re- relatively close to actually overthrowing the government, not mm-hmm. just interrupting a congressional proceeding or interrupting a parliamentary proceeding, but overthrowing the elected ruler and instating its own governmental apparatus. Um, so it does happen throughout the world. I mean it also happened in uh, Myanmar. Um, maybe 11 months ago. So, but because Americans tend to be sort of myopic about this kind of thing, they, they just sort of rashly adopt the most inflammatory terminology as an emotional outlet of sorts, meaning this thing was really bad in our view. Therefore, we're going to apply the most extreme uh, wordage. To, to kind of encapsulate our emotions, right? And just and, and, and that was that, that was basically the problem from the outset. It was that you know there was the determination made that this was going to be blown up to the maximum possible proportion, and it was going to be used in service of a variety of different ambitions that were pre-existing, uh, but that the January sixth episode intensified, namely you know censorship of the internet. You know, as we all remember, it precipitated the expulsion of Donald Trump from the major social media platforms, which was, I think, a watershed moment still in uh, these private corporations uh, overriding, in a way, democratic will by banning the elected president of the United States from their their platforms. Um, You know, imposition of different uh, surveillance and "Quote unquote counterterrorism tactics." Um, the Department of Justice constantly is bragging and also brags uh, at the uh, to mark this latest uh, anniversary that the investigation into January 6th is the most sweeping and uh, large scale that they've ever conducted. What is it like 700 plus arrests at this point and counting? Um, and you know those are being conducted without a whole lot of uh, critical oversight from the media because they agree with these characterizations. They're the ones who sort of fomented them, right? Um, so, I mean, the reason why I guess I just thought I would republish the post that I did the day of is because everything that was was so easily foreseeable as to how this would be used as leverage uh, within the American, you know political landscape and partisan warfare, I guess I could have added um, that the way that the January 6th was commemorated by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris really kind of was self-contradictory. Like on the one hand, they'll say that, you know, we must solemnly uh, remember the, the turmoil and trauma of that day and use it as an emphasis to unite as a nation or some yeah. cliche to that effect. And then the second hand will say, okay, so in order to demonstrate that we're uniting as a nation, what do we do? Well, we pass the Democrats' preferred legislative agenda. Like, how does that 
square. It doesn't really, um, but uh, it was all it was also so predictable. So that's why I thought, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to entertain the idea that somehow marking this anniversary and this kind of overblown. Right, you're not saving democracy by right. by talking how how tar- horrible these people are. Now, just so people understand where you're coming from, if they're not familiar with your history, most of the opinions on January 6th tend to be divided along ideological lines. Uh, people that think the election was stolen, for instance, and are big Trump supporters, they think that January 6th, by and large, was no big deal. A lot of the people that uh, are not Trump supporters, they think that January 6th was just the worst thing ever, attempted coup, threat to democracy, dress rehearsal for a coup or an insurrection at the very least. Now, uh, you seem to think January 6th was not a coup, not a dress rehearsal for an insurrection. Does that mean you're a big right winger, a big Trump supporter? No, you know, just a couple weeks prior to January 6th, much to the dismay of some of my more right leaning followers and subscribers and such, I posted, I uh, published a big article in the New York Daily News in print in one of its kind of feature sections, looking at some of the, the election fraud claims that were being trumpeted at that time uh, so fervently by Donald Trump and his supporters and on social media, and, you know, on these kind of weirdo TV networks like Newsmax and OAN and stuff. No, no offense to Newsmax, by the way. They kind of did go with that angle uh, excessively, in my opinion, because a lot of it didn't hold up when you, you know, there were claims made about how supposedly it was indicative of fraud that Biden outperformed Obama among uh, black voters in Detroit. Yeah, it's silly. Just silly which, stuff. Which, which wasn't true. I mean, actually, if you look, if you compare the voting tabulations between 2008 and 2000. 20, it just wasn't true. So anyway, we don't have to rehearse all that. But, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, not convinced by the vast, vast majority of most of these uh, fraud claims. And I thought it was a bit, maybe more than a bit reckless for, you know, a former president to be so ardently espousing them to the point that a lot of, a, a, at least a, an energized contingent of his followers um, kind of viewed it as an, almost a religious crusade to uh, contest the election and claim it was stolen. Because it was actually – there is a lot of bizarre religiosity that was flowing through that. I don't know if you recall, but a few weeks prior to January 6th, there was like a revival rally held at the Capitol where you had this you know, uh, conglomeration of different religious tendencies showing up and saying that you know, we need to you know, ward off the apocalypse by making sure Donald Trump is in power for another four years. I mean, it's kind of, kind of ridiculous. Right. But no, I, that I, all being said – that all being said, no. I mean, in order to acknowledge like the bad elements of January 6th or like the discreditable elements of January 6th, you don't have to lurch into the most wild-eyed exaggeration as to what its significance was. All right. Well, let and me. Let, let few me, people seem to be able to strike that balance. I want to get your take on a few other items, including some things that are happening with the current president. Let us go back in time, not to a year ago, but to 10 days ago, when uh, President Joe Biden said this. No excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I know you've been looking at the hospitalization rates in various places. Is what President Biden said true there? Is this a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Well, if that 
phrasing. If quote-unquote pandemic of the unvaccinated means what it seems to imply, which is that the primary cause or the sole cause or the exclusive cause of all COVID-related ills at this point is due to the quote-unquote unvaccinated, even using that term is a bit creepy. Like, why are we somehow doing these kind of demographic labels where everybody who didn't, for whatever reason, get a particular medical intervention now is like lumped together into this census group or something. Um, If that's what's implied by that term, then it's totally wrong. I mean, I was just, I'm uh, writing something now about uh, New Jersey uh, because I live in Jersey city. So I follow it maybe a little bit more closely than most states. And you had at a press conference this week, Phil Murphy, the governor, appeared alongside his health commissioner for the umpteenth time. And uh, to his credit, a reporter actually thought to ask, hey, clarify what per- – because they're, they're, they're touting the frightening figure, the frightening sounding figure that New Jersey has, as of today, surpassed uh, its number of ho- hospitalizations from even the peak in spring of 2020. And New Jersey got hit like New York City, very hard, you know, during that time and, you know, um, had the highest death rate of any state uh, for, for quite a while as a result of that first wave. So to say that the situation now in New Jersey hospital is even worse, if you take that at face value, that's a very disturbing thing to hear, right? But then <laughs> you dig into the details, and the health commissioner concedes uh, that according to at least whatever figures she's collected – uh, around half of those admissions are just incidental admissions, meaning it's uh, not people who are primarily hospitalized with, with COVID as the cause. But on top of that, and these, these statistics can be muddled, but at least according to what she says, the hospitalizations that they're drawing from now, uh, around a third of them are uh, people who are fully uh, vaccinated. So it doesn't mean that the vaccination doesn't reduce or can't reduce any given individual's risk. Right. So they, the they should say that if that's the case. Right. They, they shouldn't say that, oh, this is only something that's that's affecting the, the unvaccinated. They should say, oh, you know, right, if you want to mitigate yeah. your danger of dying, get the vaccine. Right. Then that would be reasonable. Right. But it's not reasonable to keep issuing these kind of furious denunciations of the unvaccinated source of all problems vis-a-vis COVID if in a major state the uh, top health official is saying that a full third of COVID hospital admissions are for people who are fully vaccinated. I mean, again, if you look at the proportions, yeah, it probably is the case that you're more likely to be hospitalized if you're not uh, vaccinated, but then, you know, Yes, there's a whole bunch of other confounding variables. But, right? but it's not as simple event, as President event, Biden made it out to be. Right. In any event, it's not that that framework that they've been going with since the summer, um, where they're just kind of hectoring people to get vaccinated. It's like a kind of patriotic duty. And if they don't, that they're you know, going to single-handedly destroying the hospital system or something. It just doesn't 
hold up. So why um, is that story not being told in the media? Other journalists, other people have to be able to add two plus two and see that it equals four. Why, when the president makes a comment like this, that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, is there no one else saying, well, excuse me, Mr. President, you know, there are major health officials that are indicating that the statistics belie the statement that you just said. What's the agenda? Well, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very similar reason to why, you know, going back years when we first started having these radio interviews that, you know, you would ask me, why isn't anybody else in the media making uh, this point? And it usually had something to do with, with Trump, whether it was the you know Russian interference saga or a whole variety of other issues. And I would always say because one of the worst things that you can be accused of in the current contemporary media climate is, quote, being pro-Trump or enabling Trump, right? So any line of questioning which could uh, lead you to be described in that way is going to be steadfastly avoided by most journalists who have to operate within a media environment where they have to be very conscious of how their peers perceive them and how their colleagues see them doing their jobs. And I think this is a continuation of that. It's, it's, it's now like if you're – if you if you were to bring up this line of questioning, it would automatically be assumed that you're quote unquote anti-vax, which has right. now been definitionally expanded beyond uh, beyond all reasonable constraints. And uh, what does being anti-vax mean? And well, it means that you're probably pro-Trump in some way, even though he's ardently pro-vaccine. It doesn't matter. Or you're like white right. Uh, you're kind of insurrectionist now, or you're right wing. I mean, it comes with all this baggage that um, can be used to tarnish you as a wholly uh, unfit person to even be within, uh, you know, 10 miles of a media job. Uh, People just don't do it. And, you know, because they're they're kind of cloistered within their own uh, kind of warped moral frameworks. But I think it's, I mean, to me, this is almost, it's not even really so much an ideological question to just look, it's an empirical one, to look at the data that's being cited by state health officials and see if it aligns with the right. Uh, right, exactly. exactly. It's, it's, it's two plus two equals four. Talking with Michael Tracy, you can follow him on Twitter at M Tracy. He's also on Substack. You could subscribe to him on Substack. Speaking of uh, coups and attempted coups, uh, I don't think in recent memory there's a better example of what a coup looks like than the overthrowing of the democratically elected president in Ukraine. And uh, yet we appear to be aligned more closely with the people that help preserve precipitate that coup in Ukraine. Give me your analysis, Michael, of the current situation of Russia and Ukraine and of the media coverage of that situation in Eastern Europe. Well, I'm struck by the lack of urgency around it, right? I mean, or we keep getting told, if you find coverage of this at all, of which uh, there's been minimal, it'll usually be something to the effect of, oh, you know, there's a possibility that maybe we'll be going to war or the U.S. will in some sense be a combatant in a forthcoming war in Ukraine and it's because Russia is massing these troops on the Ukrainian border and intelligence officials in the U.S. and Europe say that it's possible he'll invade and maybe he will, I don't know I mean, I'm not going to take the suspicions of the uh, CIA at face value Um, but the question doesn't tend to be asked, okay, so what is the U.S. interest here in becoming a combatant in this war? 
why is it that somehow, you know, all these decades after the Cold War ended, the U.S. is still this central player in a, a diplomatic standoff in Ukraine? And remember, this isn't even new. I mean, we had the first impeachment of Trump arose from a, a extremely convoluted controversy involving Ukraine that probably most journalists today couldn't even really tell you with, uh, what happened with clarity, never mind the average uh, citizen because it was so kind of cloudy as to what it was even being alleged most of the time. Um, so I, I, wish most of the co- I wish more of the coverage would lead with kind of a presumptive skepticism that the rationale for why the U.S. needs to even uh, be so deeply involved in this matter in the first place is in the U.S. national interest. Right. Like, can most people explain that? Often when, you, when questions that even approach that are posed to, like, the Secretary of State or to other diplomatic officials, they'll just talk about – they'll just kind of spout these cliches related to NATO and how, you know, how – this is in America's interest because Russia is belligerent, or like they'll you, they won't nail down what it is they're claiming justifies the U.S. potentially becoming a combatant in this war. And that's what it would be, right? I mean, the, just today, a bunch of Democratic senators led by Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who's probably the most hawkish Democrat in the Senate, uh, put out a resolution where they're kind of preemptively saying that under no circumstances can the U.S. abide by the central demand of Russia, uh, which is to refrain from supporting the expansion of NATO into Ukraine. Now, that's just a non-starter. We can't even entertain that concept. And it's just like, okay, but why? I mean, why is it why, – why does like, – not to use a cliche, uh, but why does like, a steel worker in western Pennsylvania benefit from the United States keeping it on the table to expand NATO into Ukraine? Like, that connection is never even made. It's just that these people are kind of locked into a mindset where they, they think that you know, U.S. interventionism anywhere in the world is presumptively justified. And um, – even if it means potentially becoming a combatant in the war, because they're saying that, look, we're going to send additional armaments to Ukraine. They say it's, quote, defensive weaponry. But, I mean, if Russia were sending, quote, unquote, defensive weaponry to some country in the proximity of the U.S. To Cuba, for instance. Yeah, to Cuba, and it was being used to, you know, ward off incoming American forces. I don't know that we'd... Yeah, we'd be just thrilled, right? right. As President Um, Kennedy was. Um, uh, I want to touch on uh, one or two other subjects while I still have you, Michael. Very quickly, the last time we spoke on the radio, we spoke about some of the problems in terms of credibility with the accusers of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Washington Post this week, an opinion piece by media critic Eric Wemple, asks the question, why did the media ignore an allegation against an accuser of Andrew Cuomo? Now, in this piece, it cites an attorney involved in a pretty important lawsuit, that, and it says that you were apparently the only inquiry about the uh, credibility of Charlotte Bennett as it relates to a previous accusation. Now, with all the media coverage that this Cuomo scandal got, how could you have been the only journalist in the entire world 
to ask the ask questions about Charlotte Bennett. And why do you think uh, the media did ignore these allegations against Charlotte Bennett, the Cuomo accuser? Yeah, well, I was uh, heartened to see that it finally was put on the record this week, uh, belatedly, but still was uh, welcome, that uh, I was the only journalist uh, who even put in an inquiry to the law firm that dealt with a, a lawsuit that was filed in 2017 uh, against Hamilton College and with Charlotte Bennett, who was probably the key accuser against Cuomo, um, in that she was the second accuser and gave the impression that there was this snowball effect where more and more accusers were coming out of the woodworks and you know where there's smoke, there's fire, et cetera. Um, I was the only one to submit an inquiry to <laughs> lawyers who uh, represented the plaintiff in that lawsuit that uh, who alleged that uh, Charlotte Bennett, this key accuser who more than any anybody uh, in terms of the who, who got the ball rolling on this whole thing uh, is responsible for the New York state government being upended uh, within the past uh, several months. Um, uh, because in this lawsuit, she's alleged not to have just have fabricated a sexual assault allegation, but to then have coordinated with others to give the impression that there was a snowball effect against a fellow student who they wanted to have expelled from the campus. Right. She Cuomo'd then, the student. Right. So she, she the, the, the tactics that she would go on to use against Cuomo were uh, tested or uh, pioneered by her at college, or at least according to this lawsuit. And so, you know, it's just a lawsuit, but it, so – yeah, it's worth uh, mentioning. It's pretty word. important. But right, but you should at least uh, you would at least think there would be some inqu- inquiries about it, uh, and there simply were not. Um, now, why weren't there? Well, a couple of different reasons. I think clearly Cuomo uh, did not have much of a reservoir of goodwill uh, for him. Um, definitely among the more right wing or conservative media, but also amongst a lot of the left wing. And even centrist media, because, you know, I don't know how you uh, kind of designate the New York Times ideologically nowadays, but for example, the New York Times tends to take its cues on the propriety of these sorts of things from the more progressive inclined media, and they would be seen as attacking victims. I mean, even to this day, even if you read that Eric Wemple piece, um, the attorney general, the attorney general's office, uh, claims that to even ask questions along these lines means that you're re-victimizing victims right. or something to that effect, right. um, which is convenient for her office because she, uh, Letitia James, launched a gubernatorial campaign partly on the ground that she had conducted this amazing woman-believing investigation and brought justice and uh, you know, dislodged the great foe, uh, Cuomo. And then, you know, there's all this kind of shady business where you have a a charge filed in Albany City Court or Albany Albany County Court against Cuomo. And then just it was uh, then just this uh, past week, it was dismissed. And she uh, scuttles her gubernatorial campaign within a matter of weeks. Um, So it's within her interest now to kind of 
gloss over everything that happened right, right. and say that, well, no, asking any questions about this. Like, then why wasn't this in the Attorney General report? Yeah, no, I mean, it's pretty relevant, pretty relevant, and it might be part of the reason why none of these county DAs have yet brought charges against Cuomo. Do you have a prediction as to whether Cuomo runs for office again this year, be it governor, attorney general, or something else? Well, I mean, the prediction game can be a bit dicey. Sure. I, mean, I do think that clearly this was a seismic event for him, I mean, because he – He's been a politician or an aspiring politician virtually his entire life, which maybe is not the most healthy mindset uh, to be in uh, as a human. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, this is his entire self-image and sense of self-worth, I, I would think. And not just that, but his family legacy on the line, father, you know, the, bro- the brother who had his whole, his uh, problems that were connected to this. Um, so I don't know if he'll run – this coming year, I mean, I think it's possible, uh, but I would think that he's seriously considering some kind of reentry into the electoral mm. politics domain. He's not that old, yeah. right? I mean, no. he was fighting for a reelection this year had he not been ousted. It's true. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's very plausible, and I think he also has a plausible case to say that he's been vindicated in some sense. Right. I mean, the only accusation that actually uh, bore on some kind of tangible purported – so not just a creepy statement here and there or some you know, issue where he put his hand on somebody's back while they're taking a photo, and then like four years later she says she didn't like that or something. Um, but an actual you know, groping allegation that any reasonable person would agree, if true, would be a you know, sexual assault or sexual misconduct. The only t- only instance of that, which was in the report, uh, has now been tested through an adjudicatory process, right? And was dismissed by yeah. the presiding law enforcement official. Michael, so, I mean, I think yeah, he can he can claim some measure of vindication if that means. I don't know if that means that necessarily he's going to be embraced by all the relevant interests. To uh, yeah. it's go- it's going to be very run, interesting. It's going to be very interesting. Michael, going to have to leave it there. It's always a real thrill to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Sorry for keeping you up past your bedtime. <laughs> it's okay. I'll, I'll sleep in a little late tomorrow morning and blame it on you. Great. Please do. Michael Tracy, find him on Twitter, at MTracy, the only person on Twitter worth following.